Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim Goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Haley. Well, a week last week after it felt like the whole world had changed and then we caught up again. Now I feel like we've kind of maybe plateaued. I don't know. Have things continued to change and evolve in your world or are we pretty much the same as we were last week? I think technically things have changed. Montana is now under like shelter in place or that stay at home law that many other states are as well. And last week, that wasn't the case. It hasn't actually changed much for me. Uh, I think shelter in place here, how our governor defined it, was only taking essential trips out. And um, we are still allowed to go outside for recreation, which is that's that would be the big change. I think if that went away, my life would change a little bit more drastically and I would be, you know, stuck walking the steps of my apartment, or I actually do have a treadmill, so I could do that. But it's been nice to be able to get outside for dog walks and even some runs. And I I ran outside this past weekend, and I, I did try to go a little earlier just because I knew that there would be fewer people out. And when I did see people, I tried to give them a wide berth. And I think people did the same for me. And 
it's all there's like a little bit of stress I think in the back of my mind when I was you know just when you see another person I I've noticed that like now my reaction is like stay away stay away and and even when I see like old pictures or old videos or old tv shows and people are like hugging and stuff and I'm like what are they doing you know it's crazy how fast your mind can change and your normal can change and that's something I've definitely noticed how about you I don't think Virginia isn't under shelter in place at least when we're recording this No. So as of recording, we are not under the shelter in place laws, although obviously people are just being strongly encouraged to be staying at home as much as possible and, you know, really only going out for um, minimal activities and trips and, and keeping, you know, like the stores and things like that are now closed and restaurants are takeout only and things like that, but not officially quote shelter in place. So You know, I have been able to, same as last week, basically be getting out and doing my exercise outdoors, which I'm very appreciative of these days. And um, like I was, I brought, um, I donated some hand sanitizer to the trailheads where you like sign in and out of the log saying like you're going into the woods and you sign out. But as I was, it was funny, like I would have never thought about that before, but as I was touching the the pen and paper to sign in and out, I'm like, oh my God, everyone's touching this. Like, (laughs) you know, like the woods are pretty much a, a touch free area, but that was one place where I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I'll just leave this in the little cubby here and people can be using that too. But as of right now, yeah, no, no shelter in place, but things, so things are pretty much the same for me. And like you said, if, if it is, you know, movement is confined from the home, then my world will definitely be drastically different. But at this point I'm getting by okay. And just, kind of making sure my athletes are doing the same and everyone else in my world. We have had a family, a couple family zoom calls, which is kind of interesting. I think I am talking to my family more than I have in the past, which is a good thing. That is a good thing. Even if it's virtual meetings, you get to connect that way. And I've definitely been doing my fair share of zoom and Skype and FaceTime and just regular phone calls. And I definitely feel like my social life isn't significantly less than usual. So I don't know if that means that my normal social life is, is pretty, pretty isolated. Maybe I don't, that's something I definitely am learning when everyone's like, Oh, I miss happy hour. And I'm like, I can't even remember the last time I went to a happy hour. Yeah. I think this only confirms to me that I used to think I was a little bit extroverted, but now I'm like, maybe I really am just an introvert. And I just really have not wanted to admit that to myself because I do. I think a lot of my activities are confirming that I'm quite comfortable with more of an isolated lifestyle, but there've been a lot of challenges going around, especially on Instagram, Haley. And I don't know if you've partaken in any, but that's, you know, I, I didn't want to do things and just keep doing them and keep doing them and then end up like in this position where I was going to end up having to do like thousands of pushups every day. So I managed to not, not do the pushup one. I just kind of like ignored it. I think I actually challenged you either the pushups or the band one and you ignored it. I I get very nervous that I'm going to have to end up doing like tons of these extra things, right? So just for anyone, listeners out there, it's totally okay to ignore them. Like Haley and I are still good friends, even though I ignored ignored the challenge. That's what you think. I was like, oh, so she does Alicia Montano's challenge, but not mine. Now I know where I am in the hierarchy. I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, my rule of thumb is pretty much fear if an Olympian tags me in something, I'll pretty much do what they ask because they're, you know, an Olympian. And I, I feel like that needs respect. So you're (laughs) saying you're a challenge elitist and everyone else who you've challenged or who has challenged you that you haven't done it. They're just not good enough. Well, no, that might be part of it, but also I, 
I'm very curious about things I haven't done. So when things come up that I'm like, well, I've never done that, but I never had eaten the noon tab. And I had seen that happen before places where I was and it just, I never had to do it or did it or whatever. So I was curious about the noon electrolyte challenge where you eat the noon tab without putting it in the water. So I did that one. And then I saw this other one come across Haley and no one's tagged me in it yet, but there's like a whipped coffee challenge going around and maybe I'll start it and start sending it out and then I'll tag you and you can ignore me in the whipped coffee one because I don't even want to tell our listeners what it is. Just look at my Instagram or something. And that's my mission for the next 24 hours is to make the whipped coffee and start that challenge. If this involves like a blender or something, I don't think I can do it because we've already talked on this show about how I don't have very many kitchen appliances. So I might not be able to do this one, but I love it when people challenge me and I've been trying to do as many as I can. I I did get a little sore from the first day of doing too many pushups, but now I think I've adjusted and I'm a little behind. I think I owe people a a few like game face ones and I'm going to catch up later today. I did see that one and I thought I had one of my goals for this whole time is to organize photos on my phone and photos like within my computer so that they're not all just like randomly scattered throughout files and download folders and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that if I ever sit down and actually organize some of the digital photos I have, then I'll have some good. I have a lot of good like pain race, pain face ones and stuff like that. So I just need to pull them out of the archives. Well, that sounds like a good quarantine project. Uh, How's Ramona doing? Are you still taking her for little trail adventures? I think I have. I've seen your Instagram that you have been getting out there, but is she enjoying having you home so much? I mean, I don't know if it's any different than normal, but Cowboy definitely can tell something is different. He, I think he's actually gotten to a point where he knows like when I'm on a Zoom call or a Skype call or some kind of call and like he knows my mannerism. And when I say like goodbye, he like comes up to me immediately is like, let's go out. No, I think it's, I think she thinks I'm around pretty much the same amount, but it was, we had just because it's been so nice here, like spring has fully sprung. And so it was, well, more than spring. I feel like summer sprung yesterday. It was 87 degrees here yesterday, Haley. So that was, you know, Ramona's like, wait a second. I actually don't want to go on as many walks because I hate walking in the heat. So we're dealing with that a little bit right now, but, um, overall I took her, on a lot of the hiking I was able to do in that first week. And then we progressed to a 5k PR for her. We did 28 minutes and 10 seconds. And that was like a huge PR for her. She only took one walk break where she like tried to fake me out and pretend she had to go to the bathroom. So we've been making a lot of fitness goals happen for her. That has to be a virtual dog race going on. I feel like there's so many virtual races, but Ramona should, she should sign up for a virtual 5k and get that, you know, that I talked to uh, Brianna Bamer from the Uncanceled Project earlier, and they seemed pretty like liberal on the rules for their, their races. So I feel like you could sign Ramona up. All she needs is an email address, Ramona, Ramona at gmail.com. <laughs> that one might be taken, but Ramona <laughs> Gadeski is probably not taken. <laughs> probably not. I'll see what I can do. And then, yeah, I mean, she's all about whatever I tell her to do. So that'll happen. <laughs> I love it. But at, at Live Feisty, we also have some cool things happening. There's a new webinar Q&A series. So this is the, every week they're going to bring on an expert. It's going to be, I think, on Zoom, maybe moving to Facebook Live. You're going to want to double check that, livefeisty.com. But it's going to be interactive. So they bring on an expert. You can log on 
talk to them, ask questions, get answers. It's totally free. The first one I believe is happening tonight, Thursday, April 2nd. It is with coach Marilyn Chakota. So keep an eye on the live feisty social media for, for information on how to log in there. And also uh, for information on the future webinars, this could be a cool thing, Alyssa. I like it. And it gives people definitely some interaction to come on, ask some questions to an expert and keep kind of gaining knowledge during this time and what could go wrong with that. I think it's good. And I hear we have a mailbag question. We do. So people can continue to send in your mailbag questions to Haley and me at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And our mailbag question this week comes from Courtney, who wants to know that since the pool is closed and dry land training is not very exciting. I agree with you, Courtney. Focusing on the run is her focusing on improving her run is what she's choosing to do. So she's read a lot of articles about tempo progression, track fartlek runs, and wants to know which are the most beneficial and when to put these runs into her training schedule. That's, this is a big question because I think it, it really, it depends my favorite answer, but it depends on your background in running and most beneficial. I don't think there's like one type that's most beneficial. Honestly, probably the most beneficial is aerobic running to get you a good base. And once you get that aerobic running base, that's when you start adding things in my personal favorite out of those, those four that she mentioned, tempo progression, tap track and fartlek is probably the fartlek run. So I, I incorporate fartlek runs probably at least almost once a week. I think that it's a good way to work on foot speed with minimal fatigue and risk of injury. So you can do really short fartleks. Like if you're just starting out, do 15 seconds, like maybe like just a little bit longer than a stride. For me, the sweet spot is probably about 45 seconds. And that's something, you know, myself, I have a lot of my athletes doing just to, to run 45 seconds, maybe at about 5k race effort. So fairly strong, not all out, not what you would go for your fastest 45 second effort ever, but you know, 45 seconds at a strong effort and then take, I take it usually a minute 15 if I'm doing it on the treadmill. Cause then the math is easy, um, of pretty easy, easy running in between and repeat that, you know, maybe three times to start, then maybe you work up to six times, then nine times that kind of thing. But I wouldn't go too crazy. You don't probably don't need to do more than that, but that's my favorite of those four. Yeah, I, I agree. I like fartlek runs. I also like hill runs, which actually wasn't one of the ones that you said you've recently read about, but I find that you can get a lot of bang for your buck with like variety too right now. So if you want to keep things like spicy with your running, you can do like 15 second hills. You can do three minute hills. You can do all sorts of workouts with hills and kind of, especially if you are like limited in the terrain or the range you can get to right now from your house or something, you can do a lot of things with very little as long as you have a hill. And I find that you can get a lot of strength and speed that comes out of just doing, you know, something as simple as working up, you know, start at four times 15 seconds and then work up from there, depending on your ability and things like that. So I think all of those have like a place in a training schedule. And it's definitely good to look into getting a coach um, to help you as Haley and I talk about that a lot to make sure that someone is kind of keeping an eye on the whole plan and that you're not building too fast and things like that. From a coaching perspective, I think the 80-20 rule is something like if you are just writing your own plan, you know, like those are all different types of runs that have hard aspects to them. And so typically, you know, to improve your run, the kind of general like school of thought is that 
80% of your running should be pretty easy to like cruisy running. And then 20% should be that really hard stuff where you're really doing like pinpointed focused efforts to be getting faster and improving your foot speed and um, aerobic capacity and things like that. So a lot of complicated, like sciencey aspects to that, which a coach might be able to help you with too, and just kind of, kind of keep you focused on that goal. But it is, it is a great time to improve your run. It's a great time to do a mini bike camp on your trainer with yourself. So people can keep sending in mailbag questions again to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Haley, we did get some feedback on our episode last week about hair. Oh, I'm excited about this. <laughs> yes. So it seems that we are not the only ones who have kind of waffled on the, the hair washing debate, but I got feedback from a few people who said that they too have kind of found better results with their hair by not washing it too frequently. And thanks to Steph and Cameron, who both gave me feedback about using apple cider vinegar or like this other vinegar wash that helps. And so I don't know. I'm, I mean, this time just keeps on being extended in front of me for more time to experiment with my hair. So I didn't get up the courage to try apple cider vinegar this week, but I'll definitely do it this week and I'll report back again. I mean, I'm looking at you right now and your hair looks okay. Have you, have you not washed it since the last time I talked to you? Oh no. I ha so this is the thing is I, I have to wash it because of the greasiness factor. So, okay. but I did cut back to, I'd say I'm washing it now once every other day instead of washing it like three times a day. So that's like actually quite a, a difference. And I am seeing improvement there. I just wasn't sure about the vinegar because I, I just wasn't sure. But the latest feedback that we got was that it can help with the greasiness. So I'm like, okay, I'm on it. I'm going to try the vinegar. I considered this morning when I took a shower, I was like, oh, maybe I should not wash my hair. And I still did it. I just like the smell and like the, it just, it feels good. And I have that Zelios shampoo, which helps remove chlorine if we're swimming a lot, which I'm not swimming. And obviously cause the pool is closed. So I don't know if that's overkill, but it smells really good and it just makes me feel good. So my hair might, you know, be very, very chlorine free, but, um, <laughs> not as nice, but you know, I'm not quite there yet, but I, this is good feedback. Thank you to, uh, to Steph and I can't remember the other person you said. Cameron. Who, Cameron, who wrote in. And uh, that's that's great. Thank you. Maybe I will try it, too. And Haley, we have an interview coming up for everyone today. So we are chatting with Molly Herford. And we actually talked to Molly back when I was in New Zealand. So pre-United States pandemic crisis, I would say. So a lot has changed in the world since we talked to Molly. But um, luckily, what we talked to her about stays the same. So that's good. She has had roles all over the outdoor space. And as an athlete, she's raced at elite level. She's been a team manager and she has a lot of different perspective on the sponsorship game. And that is why she put everything that she knows about sponsorship together in a book called the athlete's guide to sponsorship. And she's going to share with us a lot of the tips and the tricks about getting sponsors, keeping them happy and kind of what to do about sponsorship when you are an athlete. Um, so it was a really fun chat. She also is a co-host of the Consummate Athlete podcast that people can check out as well. But we will have Molly up next. Triathlon is certainly hard on your skin, without a doubt. That was Teresa Helsel, dermatologist PA and accomplished triathlete. Earlier this year, Teresa came on the podcast to offer skincare advice specific to triathletes. Teresa's two biggest tips were to avoid sunburn and chafing. 
And luckily, Iron Women podcast listeners get 15% off all Zelio skincare products, including Sun Barrier SPF 45 zinc-based sunscreen and Betwixt Athletic Skin Lubricant and Chamois Cream. Use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com for 15% off and use Zelios products to protect your skin during all your swim, bike, run fun. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So your background as a professional athlete, team manager, journalist, and coach pretty much creates the perfect recipe to write a book about sponsorship and how to get it, how to keep it and everything that goes along with it. So when was it exactly that you knew this was a topic that had to be addressed with, with a book? So I have to admit it was actually, I was coaching a three week long training camp and it was, you know, a bunch of junior athletes and they were all amazing humans. But I had actually said to them one night, I was working on an article about athletes at training camps. And I was like, this is a great chance for you guys to get some exposure and big, you know, big publication, big magazine. Everyone just needs to email me by tomorrow. And of the 12 kids, one emailed me back. And that started my, what I call like a burn book, which was the very rough first draft of the athlete's guide to sponsorship. That was just me grumpily typing away at like, this is how you should never be a pro athlete. And it's, you know, change and, you know, gentle. It's a lot gentler now that it's actually out. But at the beginning, it was just me being really grumpy, seeing a lot of really talented athletes making, you know, a lot of really basic mistakes that were costing them money and sponsors and opportunities. Toward the beginning of the book, you tackle the phrase, turning passion into a career. So living your passion is such a buzz phrase these days, but really you're trying to wake people up to this notion that by pursuing their passion, they're still in fact taking on a career. It's a job. Why is it important mindset for an aspiring pro athlete to be thinking of this as a job? Oh my gosh. Because when you're a pro athlete, especially an endurance sport where like, let's be honest, the money is just not that massive. You have to be everything for yourself, especially in the very beginning, right? You have to be your own accountant and you have to chase the invoices from sponsors. You have to know exactly what gear you want. You have to be the one who's pitching yourself. You don't have an agent or a manager doing that. When you're first starting out, you need to be your own marketing person, your brand manager, your hype person, your own journalist to tell your story and make sure it's getting put out there, your social media manager. Basically, you're a one-person job. And when you start listing out all of those things, you're like, wait, where do I have time to train and travel and race? (laughs) And the best athletes I know that have made the best careers for themselves are the ones that really understood that from the get-go and, you know, carved out these systems and made these arrangements for themselves so they could eventually, you know, make enough that they had a team around them. Yeah, it was so helpful. Like even just hearing you say invoice right then, it's like I remember so clearly. That was like one of the biggest things for me. Like one of the first times I actually made money and then I'm like sitting there like, okay, how am I going to get it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it and turns like, out the oh, check I is have to actually Yeah, like you actually have to, you know, Google like a template for an invoice and create your own invoice template and stuff like that. So it's a lot you haven't think thought of yet, but you bring a lot of that up in the book, which is awesome. And along with that, you offer a really realistic portrait of athlete life and the sponsorship or sometimes lack thereof that comes with it. 
Haley and I both left our corporate jobs to kind of take the big plunge into full-time athlete life, but both of us have side gigs, clearly with the podcast too, you know, and we did, you know, we left our jobs many years ago. So I'm sure the landscape has changed a bit. And do you have thoughts about if people should continue the nine to five grind, which might mean some bigger bucks or take on say like a coffee shop job or a bike shop job? which would be much less money, but maybe flexible and less stressful, especially in those like early stages of a pro career. Yeah, it's, it's such a hard thing. And I mean, part of it comes down to how risk averse you are and how much you genuinely believe in, in yourself and in your athletic career, because, you know, it's a pretty big deal to turn down a nine to five job and go for the bike shop. You better be pretty sure of yourself that you're, you're going to make it. Um, but I think actually there's almost never been a better time to be able to do some of this stuff because a lot of jobs are willing to let you work part-time or remotely at this point, because we have such a global economy and it's so easy. I mean, we're in three different countries right now and we're having this conversation. So, you know, it's not like you can't do a lot of work remotely. I, for myself, one of my big things was I never wanted to work a nine to five. I never wanted to work in an office. And while I didn't really follow the professional athlete career, I've somehow managed to follow the professional writer career who happens to do a lot of athletics. You know, that was always a priority for me. And you know, turning down some of those more stable jobs is scary at times. But I think you've you've had a lot of women on the podcast who've said they shifted first from the nine to five to a flexible schedule or some remote work before completely going into just the pro life. So there's stepping stones. As we mentioned before, becoming a pro athlete is a career and being sponsored by a company is also like becoming an employee of that company. You suggest in your book that to treat the sponsorship search like a job hunt. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, over the years, a lot of the the athletes I saw who were kind of unsuccessful, to be honest, they were really you know fast and had great results, but weren't successful with the sponsorship game, were the ones who sort of assumed that a sponsors would just flock to them and you know just naturally want to just throw money and stuff at them, you know, just for just for being fast, or you know were just very demanding of sponsors saying you know, hi, you should sponsor me because I did this. And in all of that, uh, they kind of neglect the, what is the company getting out of you? Especially again, in endurance sports, you know, most companies until you're at like a world tour top 2% level and have that kind of name recognition and, and, you know, brand identity, you're not really helping a company all that much when they sponsor you. Like, let's just be totally honest. You're not selling that many bikes or goggles or wetsuits for that company unless you're, you know, winning the top races in the world. So you have to kind of figure out what your value proposition is and come to a company as, you know, a relatively humble employee that's saying, I want to work for you because I believe in your product. I think you make a great thing. And I think I can help you market the product by doing X, Y, Z based on, you know, these things that I've already done. You can't just say, I'm really good, so you should give me stuff. Um, that's that's not how people get jobs. Do you recommend, like, you know, when you would be job searching, it's like resume, cover letter, that kind of thing, you know, like, so you're saying we should all have, like, our race resumes up to date and things like that. And then I guess a cover letter would maybe be something along the lines of, like, how we're using the product or, you know, have already been a part of the company in this way, like hopefully buying the stuff already. Right. And using it. And then, you know, do you, there's no like 
job search engine equivalent, right, for sponsorship. So is it really just like shooting emails into the, the black hole? Pretty much. And if a thing says that it's like a job search engine for sponsorship, it's probably pretty hacky and you probably shouldn't do it. There are a few of them floating around every couple of years. One comes up and it never really nets anything major. So I would probably advise against those, to be totally honest. Um, but yeah, exactly. Cover letter, resume. You know, sometimes you can find online a company has a sponsor application specifically open from certain dates. I'm such a huge fan of just like, please check the website and do all of the research you can before you just send the random cover letter because so many people, you know, immediately just send the same form letter that they've sent to like 10 other companies to, you know, info at whatever the name of the company is. And there's actually a whole page on the website of like how to apply for a sponsorship or who the sponsorship coordinator is, but people in their hurry to throw a ton of you know, spaghetti at the wall or whatever you want to say, just end up sending these really formulaic things that end up getting deleted very quickly. Um, when I was a team manager, I probably deleted in the two years I was doing that one job, I deleted probably 40 emails that were like, hello, I would like to join X team. And sometimes they actually had written in the wrong team because they hadn't bothered to find and replace the team names. That's a pretty quick way to you know, knock at your letter and resume read and looked at. I also think it's just good practice to keep your race resume up to date because current sponsors can even benefit from getting that every few months and, you know, get reminded of who you are and what you've done lately and what you've done in the past. So never, never a bad strategy to have your resume kind of ready to go at all times. And you do include really good templates in your in your in the book, and I believe also online as well. We'll link to those, of course, in our show notes, so people can check them out if they need something to kind of get them started. But the social media game has totally changed the landscape of athletes and sponsorships, and I I know that even I find it tough and frustrating when we have influencers, and and you do break it out in the book between athletes and influencers. But influencers sometimes get better deals. And sometimes we can question, you know, number of followers, number of likes, and sort of a fabricated social media presence. So can you talk to us about the difference between an athlete and an influencer? And and then also your definition of authenticity. Yes, absolutely. So athlete versus influencer. And I, you know, I'll say these two things are becoming pretty intertwined. There are plenty of athletes who I would consider to also be kind of in that influencer realm. And there are a lot of influencers who I think are athletes, but the kind of distinction between them is an athlete is mainly getting sponsorships based on their race results and, you know, their definition of themselves as a professional athlete. So they're actually getting paid to produce results. And if they're not producing results, then their sponsorships are going to be kind of called into question the next year. An influencer, on the other hand, is more getting the sponsorships based on their social media presence or their website presence or, you know, just however they're presenting themselves online. And they might race, but their sponsorship is not really tied to how well they do in the race, more the stories that they're telling from the race. And I mean, an athlete can certainly tell a great story. And I know a lot of athletes who've saved their careers because in a like rough year for them, from a results standpoint, they were putting out such great social media content that they actually maintained 
and even added different sponsors based on that. So I think it's, you know, athletes are kind of coming to terms with the fact that you also now, in addition on the topic of jobs you have to do, you also have to be a storyteller and basically an influencer to some extent, um, unless you're at that super, super high level and can pay someone to do that for you. And as far as authenticity goes, I mean, everyone is getting pretty smart at looking at Instagram and just kind of rolling their eyes at some of the, you know, really ridiculous generic posts, whether it's, you know, the same, my race went poorly and here is X, Y, Z reasons why that, and it's pretty much the same post you did three weeks ago, or, you know, all of the hashtag grateful, hashtag blessed kind of things, all that kind of stuff gets really frustrating. Or if you're trying to kind of, you see an athlete that you really admire and they're doing a great job on social media and you go and try to do exactly what that athlete is doing on social media. I am never going to be wearing rainbow colors on social media or showing off really colorful kits. I wear all black most of the time. It looks really silly when I post really bright, happy photos. That's just the brand that I've created for myself, for example. So I think you have to figure out what what your brand is and what unique things you have that make you special and set you apart. I was just talking to uh, one of the potential Olympians for one of the Canadian cycling disciplines. And we were talking about how he's trying to put together what his brand looks like for him. And he's having a lot of trouble because he authentically doesn't really feel comfortable putting his brand out there to his audience because he feels like he doesn't want to be a business. He wants to be a person that's just kind of whoever on Instagram. And that's really tough. And that's where the authenticity thing kind of comes back to bite you a little bit. And I, that's why I wrote a chapter that said, you can be authentic, but you have to do it in a deliberate way. And you have to sometimes show up like, you know, your authentic self might hate Instagram, but if your sponsors really want Instagram, your authentic self is going to have to figure out a way to make Instagram work for you. That's that's just how it goes. It's it's being a professional. It's showing up to your office um, on a day you have a thing due. Uh, you know, you can't be authentic and just be like, I didn't feel like coming into work today authentically. And your boss would be like, oh, well, that's OK. As long as you're being authentic about it, that's totally cool. So I think we bandy about the term authenticity and being authentic and being yourself and all of that. But we kind of forget you also have to be a professional, especially when you are a professional athlete. Huh. <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I think like for me, I struggle a lot of times because I just, you know, I like Instagram, but I like it when I'm like rested and can just like lounging and can do it and like think through things. Right. I don't like it when I have a million things going on and I just don't have a photo ready to post and things like that. So it can be a struggle, but I really found some helpful tips in your book and you mentioned some social media do's and don'ts and some of the do's so are to be consistent, be informative and to take advantage of platform features. So I'm the first to admit that, you know, I don't make it a priority to do the third. Like I fall into a rut and I just kind of do like probably the most basic, especially with Instagram, like take a photo, post it, do a caption, et cetera. Right. So can you give us any ideas maybe to start spicing up our social media game? Like, are there any hidden features that like are something we might not know about, you know, one or two of those maybe? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, with Instagram, one of the most interesting things I've noticed lately is, and I mean, by the time anyone listens to this episode, who knows, the algorithm could completely change. But one thing I've noticed is actually slideshow uh, posts are actually are doing a lot better. And that's because they come back up in your feed. So if you see picture number one on someone, you could scroll down, exit the app, come back, and you might actually get photo number two up there instead of another post by the person. Um, so you actually get more eyes on your post if you use the slideshow feature, right? now, or at least that's what's happening right now. And of course, I personally hate this, but video is so big right now and not not even super fancy, really well-tailored video, almost more of that authentic video. I think most people end up scrolling past anything that has like a professional title on it. People really want to see, you know, much more natural picture or like video screen. And the same is true of infographics. Unfortunately, if you have any kind of infographic-y stuff on your photo, I think people tend to assume it's an ad and just go past it really quickly. So those are kind of like the actual in-Instagram things I can think of. And, you know, I hate to say it, but using stories, I'm with you. I find any of that stuff is just maddening. And I'm like, I have enough to do in the day. I don't need to do this too. But you know what? You kind of got to do what you got to do. And I've noticed even on mine, I can tell the difference in engagement with my posts if I haven't done a story that day versus if I've done a few stories that day. It definitely bumps you up. So hate to say it, but got to love the stories. (laughs) Tackling sponsorship from a local level might be a little less exciting, but it seems like the value is often there. What are some ways an athlete can help offer worth or value to local companies in exchange for sponsorship? And why should they be going after these local companies in the first place? Yeah, this is like my number one thing I talk to new athlete or, you know, new professional athletes about is everyone wants the big, sexy sponsorship. So I'm going to use Smith sunglasses as an example. Like it'd be really sweet to get a Smith sunglasses sponsorship. That'd be awesome. Okay. You don't know anyone at Smith. You're, you know, a pretty new athlete. There is however, a local bike shop that stocks Smith. So if you, you know, get a hookup with this local bike shop, if you can, you know, kind of convince them to sponsor you based on, you know, not just your race results, but you're going to show up and you're going to lead like one ride a month with them. You're going to do a, you know, kids ride at a local race. You're going to do a talk one night at the shop about how to get started in training or something like that. You know, here's your like value add that you can do locally. You can get your Smith sunglasses. So boom, you've, you've gotten the cool swag that you wanted. And also that local bike shop owner might talk to a Smith rep who could, you know, about how great you are as a sponsored athlete. And then that Smith rep could go talk to their, their manager and mention, Oh, the shop said this guy is like selling Smith glasses for us and it's going really well. Um, so next thing you know, you might actually work out the, the deal with the bigger brand. So first of all, don't dismiss the local ones because they can actually end up leading to the bigger ones. But as far as, you know, other non-endemic sponsorships, local businesses are your best bets for actually getting, frankly, money and services from sponsorships that might not otherwise be available to you. You know, if you're, if you're a triathlete, it's kind of hard to source actual dollars from companies. Like let's, let's be realistic about this, but what about, you know, your local brewery or a local real estate firm or any of those places that are just really excited to have a professional athlete in town and growing your, your local following your local sponsorship, all of that, you know, it gets you in local papers and then maybe regional papers or magazines. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of can grow from there and bigger and bigger and bigger. But so many people want to make the immediate leap from 
no sponsorship to the major sponsorships that they leave so much on the table with local sponsors. And I mean, usually they have a few hundred bucks to throw around. Like that might not seem like a lot, but if you're a new athlete starting out and you've just cut down your nine to five to, you know, two days a week that, you know, a few hundred bucks or, or air miles or, you know, any number of that kind of not quite dollars, but not quite here's a box of gels and this should get you through your season sort of things um, are available with a lot of local sponsors. I did want to follow up on that because you write in the book about kind of acknowledging the value in a, I think you use the example of like a service sponsorship where that isn't exactly like necessarily like a pair of sunglasses that you can put your hands on, but the value in that can be significantly more than a pair of sunglasses. And, and so how you still, athletes still need to acknowledge that and do the work, you know, make the social media post about that bike mechanic so that you are acknowledging that just like you would if you got a pair of sunglasses in the mail. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit and the importance of, of acknowledging that value? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, from like the straight up dollar value, say you have a massage therapist in town who's your, your new sponsor and you're going to get two massages a month for free. That's, you know, like a $3,000 sponsorship per year. That's, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. And if you're an athlete and you're in hard training, you know, the value of that every other week massage. Um, and I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of great informational ways that you can be, you know, on social media, you can talk about the benefits of massage. You can talk about, you know, how great this person is and how to choose a good masseuse, all of these things that can actually provide value to them. But it's, and it's so tempting to just talk about the bigger sponsors and like the the sexier things than it is to talk about the accountant that's doing your books for you. But that's also the kind of content that provides this really cool, like real world glimpse into what you're doing and what you're all about. So, you know, if someone just sees pictures of you training on the beach in your sweet sunglasses and your, you know, really expensive bike and aero helmet and everything, you know, you can have those pictures. That's great. But what about one where you're, you know, sitting with your accountant and like doing your books and it's just like, this is what professional athlete life looks like. People appreciate that behind the scenes thing. And local sponsors are kind of a really good way to give that behind the scenes. Here's what the daily grind looks like kind of information in a, in a way that makes them happy and actually makes your fans have a better idea of what it looks like to be you on a daily basis. I also have found that like with the big sexy sponsors, right? Like a lot of them actually have pro deals that are like, you can send an email and get a discount code and then probably get what you want for like fairly an affordable price and then not have to worry about doing like X, Y, and Z three times a month for them. And instead spend your time like with those local companies building those relationships, which aside from everything you just mentioned, I think it makes you feel like less isolated in a lot of ways, like within your community, because it is like Healy and I know without going into an office every day, it's like very easy to go through your time in town, like, and see like the lifeguard, you know, like <laughs> not have a, a community built. And so those local sponsors, I think do a lot for you just having that like community feeling and having like, quite honestly, some friends in town and people who care about how you're doing and you can go check in with and things like that. I think there's a lot to be said, like from the mental health aspect, even of just having that local support. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, the athlete lifestyle, you know, when we're on the road all of the time, you can very quickly get so disconnected from home. And frankly, to be like, kind of a, <sighs> 
alarmist about it. You know, your athlete career is not going to last forever. So having these really good local connections will, you know, maybe make your life better if you need to take a whole season off or a year off, or if you're actually ready to retire, if you've made, you know, friends and close business relationships with a few different local companies, it's probably going to be a lot easier for you to assimilate back into the real world. Um, and yeah, plus it can just make living in your town when you are home feel a lot more, you know, like it's actually home. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I do want to ask you to, um, okay. So say you finally get in the door with a, with a company, whether it's a local company or something bigger, maybe someone actually emails you back, you know? So how do you navigate conversations from there? Like what is step two in that a lot of times, especially when it's related to like how to ask for money, free product, like discounted product? Like how do you decide that? And then I'm so curious, like you even mentioned airline miles, like, is you know, I, I guess I never really would have thought to say that before, but how do you find that those conversations go best when you are like, you know, saying this is what I need? Yeah. In this case, information is power. So having budget for the season, having your race plan, your race calendar, exactly what, you know, flights are going to cost, hotels are going to cost, what gear you want to use that season. Um, having all of that before you even approach sponsors is super helpful because a, it's a lot easier to approach sponsors. If you know, okay, this season, I'm going to need at least $15,000 to, you know, make it from April to September without having to go into massive credit card debt, because it makes it a lot easier to understand when someone's like, well, we can give you $700. And you're like, well, that's uh, okay. 14,300 to go versus if you hadn't made that budget and you're like, yes, $700. Amazing. I'm rich. Um, So I think the first step is really figuring out what it is that you need and what gear you need too. Because a lot of companies are pretty willing to respond to emails, I'll say, and maybe even say, like, yeah, we're absolutely happy to, you know, help you out with gear. Here's this bike that is exactly the model that you didn't want, and we're going to give that to you. Or here's, like, the ugly sunglasses in the weird colorway from, like, three years back that we have in the the warehouse. So I think having your wish list ready to go is is probably one of the most important things. And it's oddly something that very few people I know actually think to do, especially with the budgeting for what a season is going to look like. So if you budget and you know, you know, roughly how much you're going to have to spend on flights for your race season, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, so cash, or if they can't give me cash, a lot of companies do in fact have air miles or points with some airline. And it's pretty easy to, for them to just book you flights. That's actually one of the weirdest workarounds that I've ever found that works really, really well. So that's kind of one of my favorite examples is, okay, you know, you asked for $3,000 for flights and they said, no, okay, what can, what can you ask for next? Knowing what you want to ask for. I think, you know, it's really tricky when someone emails you and you're just so excited that they're willing to do anything with you. You know, that's, that's great if they're going to give you a discount code, but I think it's always, especially for women, it's it's hard to ask for more and ask for exactly what we want, but that's so important. And I think, you know, even in freelance writing, I, you know, I do this all the time. I'm emailing with people and they're like, Oh yes. Like we'd love you to write this article for us. Like, what is your fee? And it's the most terrifying question in the entire universe. (laughs) And my stomach just drops. I'm like, Oh God, don't make me figure out the number figure I have to give you. And I wish I was less scared of that. And I'm trying to be as I, as I am an adult human living in the world, I'm trying to get a lot better with just, yeah, this is what I'm worth. And you know, this is, this is what I'm asking for. And I, 
I have yet to have anyone be like, that's entirely too much, which means I'm still not asking for enough. <laughs> but that's that's neither here nor there. Don't be afraid of putting like actually asking for what you want. And, you know, if they say, here's this gear we can give you and you're actually like, OK, well, that's great, but I need cash as well. You know, it's fine to say that the worst that's going to happen is they're going to say, no, we can't do that. They're not going to take the gear off the table because you asked for some money on top of it. And don't be afraid to say no either. If they're like, nope, we can only give you this box of gels that are going to expire in two months. It's okay to walk away from that. (laughs) So Lindsay Corbin is a professional triathlete and she has been a guest on the Ironman podcast before. I think we talked to her about a year ago about how, um, and she's really good at sponsorship and she talked about sponsorship, but she also talked about how her husband, Chris, who is a digital marketer and photographer takes pictures of her racing and is able to get them to her sponsors the night of the race, like within hours of her finishing. So we're sure that her sponsors love this, but not everyone has a partner who is a digital marketing guru and photographer. And sometimes we are traveling by ourselves. How can we be like Lindsay without a Chris? Oh man. First of all, I have to admit there are so many people I know who the the ones that do the best on social media and stuff often have a Chris. So I'll just put that out there. Like it's an unfair advantage, <laughs> but beyond that, um, there's actually one pro cyclocross racer. I know Magalie Rochette, who is telling me that after every race, the first thing she does is she gets in the car. She emails the two or three race photographers that she knows that are often at most of the races that she's at on the circuit. She emails them. Whoever gets back to her first with a great photo of her, she pays for the photo. Um, She's done this so many times with the same photographers that they give her a really great rate, but this way she owns the photo. She then puts it on social media with, you know, her quote about the race, but then she also actually emails it immediately to all of her sponsors and to a few certain media outlets that she knows are going to be covering the races with a couple quotes they can use. And that has gotten her so much more press. It's gotten her on so many more Instagram feeds because, you know, it's a photo that she actually owns the rights to. So the sponsors can actually use it and not get sued by a photographer, which is a very important thing. <laughs> and I mean, it costs her a few bucks each race. Sure. But, you know, for making her sponsors happy, getting her face out there, getting her in a lot more, you know, magazines and websites and stuff, that's worth its weight in gold. So sometimes you just got to suck it up and pay for the race photography. Or, you know what, you can also go in the parking lot, find some random person who looks like they won't steal your phone and ask them to take a picture of you like riding your bike, like toward the finish line or running toward the finish line, like after everyone's kind of cleared away you'll feel like a weirdo, but it's totally fine. Like everyone feels like a weirdo getting their photo taken or, or, or if that's just like, you can't do it. You can't hand your phone to a stranger, uh, set your phone on video mode in like the highest quality you can do and then video yourself running or riding or whatevering past it and then stop and screen grab some images from that. It will be much easier than trying to deal with burst mode. That's the hacks for the pre-race or post-race photo. So these are actually really good. And I have to admit that I put the video concept to the, so I'm one, like, I don't like asking people for photo. I'm not worried they're going to steal my phone. I'm just like, I never even get like a good photo when it's a stranger looking at me because like they're feeling awkward. I'm feeling awkward. And it's just, it looks ridiculous sometimes. So while I've been in New Zealand here, I have been setting up my phone, like as I've been doing stuff through the day and having it on video because I've been traveling alone and I have no one here to take photos. And 
then like, yeah, I go through and I watch the video really slowly and I scream, grab like something. And I do have to say, I've been getting like the past couple times I've done this, my posts have been doing much better than any other posts I have been posting recently, you know, like barring something like if I had a good photo or something. So it really does work. And I'm actually really excited to use that more because for those of us who travel alone a lot and have to like make do with what we can, I think that's a really, really good tip. And I also think, you know, like when you were talking about doing something right after the race, like my heart would sink. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, after the race, I can barely speak English, you know, but I will say just to your point about treating it, the whole thing, like a job, right? Like if I, I think if someone comes up to me at the race and was like, you need to do this now, I'd be like, if it's like sprung on me. Right. But now knowing that's my ultimate goal, like what can I do? That's like one step in that direction after my next race and try and just build that into my routine. Right. Because we are endurance athletes. Like I can go one more hour and sit on my phone and do a little bit of work after the race. Right. Just to hopefully make sponsors a little bit happier. And it sounds like there's not a lot of people doing those things. So like that one extra thing is really going to set you apart. Yeah, absolutely. Like as someone who covers a lot of races, I spend a lot of time post-race when I'm not at the race site, you know, scrolling through the riders that were at that race or the the racers trying to find someone who's posted anything. So I have some kind of quote to grab because they're not picking up their phones and answering a call from me after the race. So I'm trying so hard to get that quote off of, you know, this person said this on Instagram. Um, It's not a great strategy, but, you know, with how fast everything moves in the world of, you know, online media now, especially in sport, you want to get as much content as you can as quickly as you can. So as an athlete, you are helping media so much when you post immediately after the race. You're making our lives so much easier, and I deeply appreciate it. (laughs) And you touched on this just a little bit, but I did want to kind of make this a firm question for you, like photos, best practices. Can you, you know, we never want to step on professional photographers toes and like just post something that they give us. Right. So can you give us like just kind of the etiquette of how to deal with photographers? And like you said, I mean, it sounds like it might come down to spending a little building that into your budget so that you can, you know, give them the worth for their product. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll say most photographers, if you're on a racing circuit that has the same photographer there week after week after week, you can get to know your, you know, scene photographers like in, in cycling in particular, there's, you know, maybe 15 that do the off-road circuit that I know pretty well now. And, you know, you buy a couple photos from them. And after that, you've established this, you know, really trusting relationship of, Hey, I'm not going to steal your photos. And suddenly they're actually much more willing to give them to you or give you a discount on them. But you have to, you have to help them out first. Like they're also here doing a job and not getting paid a lot either. Um, they're in it for the love of the sport too. So anytime you get grumpy about like, ugh, but this guy, like I make this photo, of course I should be allowed to use it. Remember that they're also not making a whole lot of money. And that tends to change like my opinion of race photographers really quickly. Uh, when I remember, right, they're making about as much as I am right now. Um, so first thing, yeah, always, always at least offer to buy the photos. If they give you a photo, that's fantastic. But double check that you're allowed to send it to sponsors. That's a big one. Sometimes, you know, they'll give you the photo for you to use on your social media, but they didn't mention that it was totally cool. If, you know, giant bike brand also posts it and that can get you in a little bit of trouble. So that's kind of the photographer etiquette. They can be your best friends or your worst enemies. (laughs) 
Also, they're the ones taking the flattering pictures of you. If they get really annoyed with you, suddenly they only take pictures when you're like, just took a deep breath on the bike and your belly's hanging down and you like have spit coming off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> Treat them well. <laughs> Molly, you were recently on the Sonia Looney podcast and Sonia, you know, she, she talks a lot about sponsorship and, and her on all of her social media and in that whole podcast episode. And I wanted to ask for your opinion on a recent tweet of hers. I think this was back in January. She talked about being ghosted in email by people or brands that she had existing relationships with. She said that it's one of the most disrespectful and frustrating things that a brand can do. She wishes they would say no or say, I don't know yet, rather than ignoring her. And she said that this is rampant in the bike industry. What is your take on, on Sonia's position there? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I'm pretty glad she said that. It's it's kind of back to the authenticity thing. She's completely right. There are a lot of companies that will do that. And, you know, to be doing that so late in the game, especially, you know, in her situation where it was kind of coming down to the wire in terms of when normally you'd be inking the contract for sponsorships, to have companies that just don't write back, especially when you do have established relationships, you know, that is disrespectful. It's It sucks, but it's I mean, it's also part of the game, right? It's like having a really crappy boss or, you know, walking in and finding out that your entire team has been made redundant or, you know, in my case, like an article gets killed and I don't get told about it and I've done all this work and, you know, it's it's not going to go anywhere. Um, so unfortunately, that's, that's kind of part of life. I would say the cycling industry has fairly high turnover in in the companies. So, you know, it's one day you're emailing with this one guy and he's like, yes, definitely. Everything is great. And then the next day, new guy got his inbox worth of stuff in and just kind of ignores your email because he's got a lot of other stuff on his plate. Um, so that, that tends to happen just because of how the cycling industry is. Um, I'm sure it's probably the same in most endurance sports. I think, you know, in that case, really the only thing you can do is, is what you can do, right? You send a couple email follow-ups, you try a phone call. People of our generation, I'm going to say, are, ter- are I'm terrified of the phone. So the phone is sort of my, my last resort, but this past year I've had to realize like, oh, right. If I need to have these hard conversations, like, yes, the company should have emailed me back, but I can also phone their head office and figure, you know, go through the system to get the person on the phone who I need to talk to. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people tend to forget in the sponsorship game. We're so used now, or we're so used to doing everything digitally now that we never actually think to go to, okay, how can I get a, an actual human voice? Because you'll probably get a much faster response if you can get the person on the phone. So that would probably have been, and I, I actually know Sonia tried that too. So she, she definitely tried every avenue available um, before tweeting that. But I think a lot of people give up after one email, I would say push from all sides. <laughs> And Molly, you touched on this a little bit in terms of like asking our worth and maybe pushing a little bit on that. But so do you see that women approach sponsorship quite differently than men? And otherwise, other than that, like, are there any other aspects that as women, we should maybe really like, you know, be introspective about and think, are we doing this? And can we do it better in terms of sponsorship or even in terms of how we present our own personal brands? Yeah, for sure. I think, I was saying this actually to a male cyclist the other day who was lamenting that women cyclists have it a lot easier in terms of getting sponsorship. And I, I had to laugh at it because I was like, oh, yeah, it's super easy being a woman. Like, it's just, yeah, we never have problems with anything. You're definitely at the disadvantage here. Um, 
But then I, I thought about it. I was like, well, you know what? I do think women have have an edge in that we often are multidimensional when it comes to how we who we are as people and athletes. Most women I know who are pro athletes have had a life before athletics or have a life during athletics that gives them a lot more marketable both skills like in actual like I can do X, Y, and Z that's outside of just you know, riding and running really quickly, but they also have these really cool stories that they can tell, you know, whether it's they're, you know, a mom of three and are still competing at the highest level in triathlon, or, you know, they're traveling the world as a, you know, accountant on the, you know, on the fly, but also competing in ultra marathons. I think we have the capacity to handle a lot more than, than men do. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, and I think we, we don't really talk about it or, or flaunt that as much as we we really could be when we're when we're approaching sponsors. You know, I think we get really scared and we want to just come off as as just athletes. Like, okay, these are my race results. I'm a very serious athlete. Don't worry about this other stuff. This other stuff has nothing to do with it. But I think if we can present ourselves as these really cool multidimensional women who are doing so many awesome things, that's a lot more for a company to talk about than just she rides really quickly. And continue with the theme of multidimensional, very talented women. In addition to the Athlete's Guide to Sponsorship, the book that's been the topic of this conversation, you are the author of Saddle, Soar, Ride Comfortable, Ride Happy, Fuel Your Ride, and the Shred Girl series, and a websuit brand for young girls. So I have a hunch that you have some more things in the works. What should we be looking for these days? I believe you also have a podcast. How can our readers follow you or our listeners, our readers, your readers, our listeners, <laughs> my readers. <laughs> oh man. So many different ways. Um, well, the second shred girls book in the series, Allie's Rocky ride comes out in July. So I am super stoked about that. Pre-orders for that just opened. You can find that at shred girls.com. Um, my podcast that I co-host with my husband is called the consummate athlete, where we investigate kind of all of the different facets that can make us this very, very um, well-rounded athlete, whether it's, you know, that you want to go kiteboarding on the weekend and then run a marathon the next weekend and maybe go rock climbing in between. Uh, we just really like the idea of being active and adventurous kind of across the board. Um, yeah. And then I have the outdoor edit, which is my, my other website where kind of everything that I do lives and, uh, has links to everything. So that's probably the fastest way to find me or at Molly J Herford on Instagram and Twitter. Molly, thanks so much for making yourself so accessible and sharing this wisdom with us. I think this is super helpful for me now in what, like my sixth year of pro racing. So I imagine that we have a lot of listeners out there in the beginning stages of thinking through all this that will get like a jump start on things. So thanks for coming on and sharing all of this and we'll keep an eye out for what you have next. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Alyssa. Imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport watermelon flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance lemon lime flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90 minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com. 
Okay, Alyssa, I have been following your social media, your Instagram page, and I think you have been using some of Molly's tips. Haley, I totally have. So if people follow me at Alyssa Gadeski on Instagram, you can see that there's a noticeable uptick in one, my posting and two, the quality of how I'm posting and like updates that I'm able to give pre-New Zealand trip and post-New Zealand trip because that was the time that I buckled down and started using Molly's tip about how to do your own video, like photo shoot by using the video aspect and then screenshotting the frames and things like that. And it's super helpful to me as someone who just travels alone by and like finds herself training a lot alone and things like that. And with all of the time that, you know, people are probably spending alone these days in the quarantine life, like it's a good time to practice that. And I'm finding that it has really increased my Instagram game. So I'm super pumped about that. So you are actually social distancing. You're not going out in the woods with a photographer who's capturing these shots. You're doing it yourself. Yes, I'm tricking everyone, especially my mother, who always texts me to ask me who was with me to be taking the photo. And then I tell her, no, I did that myself again. And then she's like, oh, like, I think she's just her mind has been blown by this whole thing. Or she thinks I'm just lying to her about like going on trips with friends. I love it. Well, keep up the good work. I'm going to have to take some of Molly's tips for myself. Maybe we'll see a, an improvement in my Instagram as well. But Alyssa, it has been great to catch up. If anyone it wants more Live Feisty content today, tonight, if you're listening to this on Thursday, when it comes out Thursday, April 2nd, tonight, our first Live Feisty webinar with Coach Marilyn Chakota. Find those details online so you can ask her some questions because we all have a lot of questions right now and then we'll hopefully we'll have more of those uh coming in the next few weeks so stay tuned all right Haley stay safe and I'll talk to you next week bye Alyssa thanks for listening to this podcast please subscribe like and comment on iTunes my favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.